Good afternoon, everyone. We'll be reading from First Peter chapter four today, um, and Revelation. Our first passage is First Peter chapter four, starting from verse twelve. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Our next passage will be from Revelation chapter 2, starting from verse 8. Revelation 2, starting from verse 8. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Thank you to Marilyn for the reading there. Uh, big warm welcome again to everyone here today. I forgot to introduce myself uh, last time I was up here. Uh, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church along with Ben, who's currently uh, at his home group, probably having lunch at the moment uh, in time. A couple of quick announcements before we begin. Firstly, um, a big congratulations to Esmond and Vanessa. Uh, last night we had their wedding ceremony uh, and feast. Uh, it was an enjoyable um, and uh, so it was just a really beautiful uh, moment, uh, small, short wedding ceremony to celebrate uh, their union together. Uh, so big congratulations to them. Check out Ivan's Instagram, uh, some beautiful photos there too. Uh, don't forget, after this service, there is Q&A. Uh, come to mind uh, for you as well. Let me pray and ask God to bless us now as we read this word. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that this word today will be a great feast for our souls and that you'll take it and, and implant that word deep within our hearts that we might respond in faithfulness towards your son. Help us to hear this word today and to receive it, embrace it, that we might trust Jesus and not fear the future, but be faithful even unto death to live for Christ. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll bless us this, this morning and in, uh, in this time now as we reflect upon your word. For we ask these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Despite all the rain lately, I love Brisbane. It has modern conveniences and a great laid-back lifestyle. Lots of cafes and places to dine. There are heaps of public interest places to check out, uh, places like museums, libraries, parks, etc. Shopping for our groceries and other items is modern uh, and convenient. Coffee in Brisbane is getting really good and, dare I say it, better than, not better, as good as Sydney or Melbourne. I nearly tripped up there. Not better. I repent. Uh, our roads, our roads and our transport system are okay, uh, but, you know, relatively speaking, it's nice that our roads are relatively well taken care of compared to a lot of other places around our world. And don't forget, we have the coast, the Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast right on our doorstep. Brisbane has all the benefits of big city living without actually feeling like a big crowded city. Yet for all the great things about Brisbane, there are some worrying signs, some trends and some things happening around our city, but also around our nation, that means for us to keep living faithfully for Jesus will get more challenging. A few years ago, uh, a number of churches in the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches Network were suddenly put on notice. See, quite a few of these churches and these church plants use school halls, primary school and high school halls, uh, to gather together as a church community. Now, there were some secular organizations that were trawling their online sermons on their websites to hear and listen out for any references to the hot-button issue of the day, sex, homosexuality, and gender. And if any of these churches taught anything close to what the Bible teaches on these issues, then they would begin an email campaign to that school to oust the church from the property. Recently, Victoria has passed legislation banning conversion therapy. Now, the aim of the legislation, I think, is meant to be helpful. It wants to protect vulnerable people struggling with same-sex attraction from being abused, and we should all be for that. Our church should be a safe space for anyone to explore questions about Jesus and sexuality. And yet, at the same time, the wording of this legislation in Victoria is probably far too general and quite possibly makes illegal the reading of certain parts of Scripture, some sermons, and praying for individuals who struggle with same-sex attraction. And then there are the constant concerns in, of the, about the admittedly relatively new ideas about gender and how it's been impacting and infiltrating our institutions, our politics, our workplaces, and even our schools. As much as we want to be a church that loves and cares for people and everyone who comes through our doors, our world and our city is rapidly changing. Faithfully following Jesus feels increasingly costly. I can think of few parallels to first century Smyrna than 21st century Brisbane. Smyrna was also a place of relative wealth and enjoyed paved streets, a library, a gymnasium, and even had a shrine to writer and poet Homer, who they believe was born there. Paved streets, library, gymnasium, these were enjoyments, the benefits of a big city, but Smyrna itself wasn't a big city. It enjoyed the benefits of being a big city without being a big city. And yet, for all its wealth and prestige, life for Christians in the city was hard and difficult. The pressures that they faced included the pressures we face and even more. Following Jesus 
cost many Christians in Smyrna. There's good reason why Jesus knows that they are in poverty, but it looked like things were going to get worse before they got any better. Which brings us to the driving question in our passage today. What will keep believers going in their faith when things get tough? What will help them stand for Jesus? And will the lessons that they heard be heard by us today? In our passage today, Jesus addresses the second church out of seven. And remembering the main point and purpose from chapters 2 and 3, Jesus Christ, who rules the church, assesses the church and calls for a response of persevering in what is good and repenting of what is bad, promising a reward to those who conquer. And our passage today fits very neatly into that overarching main point and purpose. We will see Jesus assess Smyrna, this time finding a church generally going well and in need of lots of encouragement to persevere. And he, as he calls them to persevere, he will promise a great reward to those who conquer. But what is it that will keep them holding on? What will compel them to stand up under potentially the same sort of pressures that we will face as well? Part of the answer to that question is found in the very one who writes to them. As we meet Jesus in the opening of verse 8, we find a description of himself in ways that are exactly what the church needs. Have a look again at chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now Jesus is addressing the angel here, the heavenly connection for the church, and he introduces himself as the first and the last. Now, Jesus here is taking on the words of Almighty God. It's, the sim- it's very similar. First and last is almost exactly the same as the phrase, the Alpha and the Omega. Right? The first thing that Jesus does for the reader is remind us and remind his readers uh, and those listening in on this that he is Almighty God. Now, why does he do this? We know that this church is a church that needs some comfort and encouragement to persevere. So why and so how does this introduction help? The answer is because nothing takes Jesus by surprise. Now, as a pastor with three young kids, I'm careful about not to use them too much as sermon illustrations. Uh, But I was thinking about this point during the week, and uh, I was trying to work out what it means for this church, what it means for this church in particular, that Jesus introduces himself as Almighty God. And uh, as I was thinking about this, I could hear in the other room my three kids playing very sweetly together, right? Uh, My oldest is uh, turning nine, uh, the middle one is seven, youngest one is about to turn five in the middle of the year. And they're of that beautiful age where they're so close together in age that they can play together really well. And they were just playing together lovely. There's this gorgeous giggling coming from the next room. They're so great at making up their own stories and playing together. Uh, Peace and harmony. I'm pretty sure there was a rainbow outside the window that day too. Just everything was perfect. Now, parents know exactly what's going to happen next. And sure enough, the giggling turned into whinging and crying. One child was no longer happy and started hitting another child and stealing the other's toys. And if you know my kids, you can probably guess which one. One moment, it was all good, and literally five seconds later, it all gone pear-shaped. In a home full of kids, it only lasts, peace and harmony only ever lasts for five seconds. Now we had a whinging and kicking and a child come, another child coming into the office crying because the other child was not playing nicely. And my first question to this was, what happened. I didn't see it. Tell me what happened. How? It was going so well. 
But do you know a question that Jesus has never had to ask? What happened? I look back on that and think, wow, as Jesus presents himself as almighty God, he has never taken his eyes off his church and then turned back and to, 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 to work out what happened. And that has to be a comfort to hear because if Jesus is the first and the last, if everything begins and ends with him, then no matter what happens in this life, Jesus is there and he knows. All history is wrapped around Jesus. Through all time and ages, Jesus is present. Nothing will ever take him by surprise. And as the eternal one who holds history in his hands, he also holds his people in his hands. The safest place to be. But then Jesus' introduction of himself takes a a stunning turn. As the one who has died and come back to life. Every now and then when I'm reading my Bible, I get to a point where I think to myself, I'm sure that was not there the last time I read that. And sometimes some details we just gloss over so quickly. Look at this detail and do not gloss over it. Because Jesus has just introduced himself as the eternal one, the first and the last. He's taking on the Alpha and Omega tag for himself. How does the first and the last, the almighty God, die? How does almighty God die? The the eternal sovereign enters into our world. He takes on the form of of his creation as a man. The timeless one entered into history. The eternal one clothed in an aging body. He is killed and then he rose again. Islam takes offense at this idea. The idea of God dying is so offensive to them that they completely reject it out of hand. And yet here is the heart of the gospel message in Christianity. It is a complete wonder that we read this. Uh, Charles Wesley captures the wonder of this and mystery of this gospel moment in his well-known hymn, And Can It Be? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who? can explore his strange designs. It is a mystery, a wonder beyond our full comprehension. See, we cannot ever fully know everything that God planned as he was sending his son Jesus to die. But we can know truly that Jesus did indeed come to die. We can't know it fully, but we can know it truly. He did walk on this earth. He was crucified on the cross. And we can know truly that three days later he rose again. Jesus, the eternal one who holds his people's lives in his hands, he came and died and is raised back to life. And if Jesus is alive again, nothing, not even death, has power over him. And if it doesn't have power over him, Jesus will make sure that death will have no power over his people. Given what Smyrna was facing, about to face, they must keep their hearts and their minds on the one who is bigger than all of that. Because if they do, then they will conquer to the end. They've got the great almighty God with them. No one can defeat them. Uh, Back in the early 90s, I remember uh, seeing some TV ad for something I can't remember. I remember the ad quite clearly. And in this ad, you can see a group of kids playing basketball together. 
And obviously in this group of kids, there's one particular kid who's a little bit bigger than the rest and he's bullying them all. And he begins picking on this smaller kid. So the bully challenges this smaller kid to a game of five and five. You pick your team, I'll pick my team, let's go. So the bully has first pick because he's bigger and he grabs one of his friends, roughly the same size as him. And as the smaller kid turns back and looks at the crowd, uh, looks at the, the kids on the playground, he's trying to work out who his first pick is. And just as he's about to choose his first election, Michael Jordan walks onto the basketball court and says, hey, can I play too? And so the smaller kid gets Michael Jordan on his team. Right? Having Jesus in your corner is like that. Victory is assured. Smyrna was heading into some deep waters of trouble. They needed the assuring backup of the almighty God in Jesus with them. And remember that Smyrna was a small city with some big city benefits and a relatively wealthy city. But for all the wealth and prosperity of the city, the church looked very different. Uh, first bit of verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. What a comfort to have the eternal, the eternal almighty divine son of man know intimately and personally the trials and troubles of his church. The one who holds his church in his hands knows everything that is happening in it. He knows their tribulation. He knows the troubles that they were going through. The painful, wearisome trouble that had pecked away at the church little by little. As tribulation goes on, it chips away joy takes the wind out of perseverance and the longer it drags on the more it wears away and probably one of the most discouraging things about going through tribulation is this feeling of loneliness that you're alone in it you know even as a small church community that Smyrna was that sense that the whole city was against them must have been heavy and into those feelings of discouragement and loneliness come these words from Jesus. I know. I know what you're going through. When you're going through something difficult, it's one thing for a friend to feel sorry for you. It's another thing for them to sit down with you and say, I feel with you because I know what that is like. Over the past few months, uh, I've had to counsel a few people uh, whose parents are going through a divorce. My own parents were divorced uh, when I was going through Bible college. Parents splitting up is difficult at any stage of life, and it feels incredibly lonely when it, when it happens. You may have heard the, the statistic that the divorce rates in our world, or in, our, in the Western world, are something like 50%. One in every two marriages ends in divorce. And you may have heard that this statistic is even true in churches. But that's actually false. The data actually shows that if you ask more questions, in Bible-believing churches, divorce rates are incredibly low, incredibly low. Now, praise God for that. That's great news. But you see, when it happens to you, or when you're impacted by it, suddenly you feel quite alone because no one else is going through something similar. I remember sitting down with this one guy as he shared his particular struggle and, you know, just to hear the words, yeah, that really sucks. I know what you're going through. Suddenly, you, you're, you're not alone anymore. Jesus, on, in, on, a, on a bigger level, on a bigger way, Jesus knows that his, his, the struggles of his church. 
the church is not alone because he is present with them. And he knows not just the struggles, but he also knows their strengths. He knows the poverty of the church. Now, given how wealthy Smyrna was, it's interesting to hear that the church was poor, which actually gives us maybe some clues as to what may have been happening. See, later on in the book of Revelation, we're told that those who do not have the mark of the beast are unable to sell and to trade. It looks like the church of Smyrna, the Christians in Smyrna, were being frozen out. Right? Members of the church were perhaps losing their jobs. Finances were drying up because nobody wanted to help them or to do business with them because they were followers of Jesus, the first century version of cancel culture. But their physical poverty was matched by their spiritual wealth. Right? What they had in the gospel, what they shared among each other, each other was, the, was a wealth beyond what physical eyes could see. Jesus' assessment of them was that they were rich, Guys, this is a powerful reminder that we must never evaluate ourselves just by the world's standards, but by how Jesus views his people. Someone told me that in Singapore there is a a big dream and a big chase of the five C's. I can't remember exactly what they all are, but they're all worldly markers of wealth. You have all of these things, right? You know that you've made it. And everyone, even Christians, try to subtly, gently push forwards towards that. Here instead the words of James Hamilton in his commentary on this passage. God's people are rich because of what we, ha- what we have will save for eternity. When Jesus comes on that white horse, the outdated clothes, the beat-up cars, the houses where the appliances have not been updated, will cease to be indications that we are wealthy. The only thing that will matter is whether or not we have the gospel. And if you have the gospel, you are rich indeed. Why does it matter what other people think? Should it not matter more what Jesus considers is wealth? Jesus knew their tribulations and he knew their true wealth. But he also knows the problems that they were facing as well. Have a read with me of verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The church in Smyrna was getting slandered. Now, to slander someone is basically to say false and damaging things about them, to go around telling lies about the church and its leaders, to make false assumptions about motives, and to spread that maliciously around to others. Stuff was being said about this church that was an outright lie, all based on really faulty assumptions. Uh, Some of the slander that we've been able to uh, uh, read and and, um, find out from the early church, uh, some of the slander against early Christians that we know of accused Christians of incest and cannibalism. Why were they accused of incest? Because we called each other brothers and sisters and we loved each other. Why were Christians accused of cannibalism? Because at our gatherings, they would eat the body and the blood of Christ. Right? Slander based on really faulty assumptions. We don't know exactly what the slander here was in Smyrna, but we know who it came from. Uh, Jesus points out that it was those who say that they are Jews, but really aren't. The slander was coming from those who thought of themselves as God's people, 
but actually weren't. They weren't God's people because they were opposing God's work. They were doing Satan's work. Uh, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Satan is the adversary of God. He, he works to oppose Jesus and the gospel, and he will oppose the work of gospel-centered churches. Satan does this by using different means, and in this case, people to do his work. How? I'm not exactly sure, but anyone who actively works to oppose God's church and God's work is in league with Satan. Now, they may not be doing it intentionally for Satan, but whatever work is done to combat gospel-centered churches, Satan is happy with. The church in Smyrna had problems. They were being persecuted by those who called themselves God's people but were actually working on behalf of Satan. And so what does the Almighty One who knows their suffering and is present with them, what does He call them to do? To this church, two specific imperatives are given, two specific responses. The first is in verse 10, not to fear. The second is at the end of verse 10, be faithful. Now, there is actually a third in verse 11 to hear, but that's actually what every church is told in this letter to do. So there are two specific responses for Smyrna. First, do not fear. The church in Smyrna had already suffered so much, living with the slander that they had received could not have been easy. The inability to just explain your thoughts and reasons, the assumptions that were made, then the firm hand of Rome in league with the Jews bearing down on them. But Jesus says in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. What they had gone through already was a lot. But now Jesus is preparing them for more. There is more suffering in your future. And listen carefully again to what Jesus says. He says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Pause on that for a moment. At the start of today's sermon, I raised some genuine concerns around our nation that are, that are signs that being a Christian is going to be increasingly difficult. But let's also do a reality check for a moment as well. At the same time, nobody that I know of in Australia or Singapore, for that matter, has lost their jobs because they were a Christian. And you may have heard of this guy called Israel Folau. He uh, was a rugby uh, player, a rugby union player. Uh, he got fired from his position because he posted up uh, Bible passages about homosexuality on his, in- on his Instagram. But even then, in that case, he managed to settle that matter out of court. And he settled it in a way where he was able to walk out of those meetings smiling and happy. So it didn't seem to be that bad. Nobody has been denied a bank loan because they're a Christian. Nobody has been jailed or lost their lives in this country because they have followed Jesus. But notice what Jesus says. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. It's the future that we are often afraid of. When you think about it, fear is usually rooted in the future rather than the present. So the biggest threat in our minds is not what's happening now, but what might happen in the future. Let me say that again. The biggest threat in our minds is not what is happening now, but what we fear might happen in the future. And so hardly anyone has lost their jobs for taking a Christian stand, but how many of us are afraid of losing our jobs if we were to take a stand? 
How many of us are afraid of losing friends at school or at uni? Last Friday night at the teens group, one of the teenage teens was uh, talking and explaining how he was with his friends and they all started to yell at him and argue with him because he simply voiced his opinion that he didn't believe homosexuality was right. And so he asked him, what do you say now? How did, what do you say about it now? And he said, nothing. I keep my mouth shut. How many of us are keeping our mouths shut for fear of what might happen to us? HR might say something. Your boss might pull you aside. The fear of what might happen seems to be more powerful than what is actually happening. Jesus says, do not be afraid. He gives two reasons why we should not be afraid. The first reason is that because what you're about to suffer is a test of their faith. Verse 10, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Who is doing the the action here? Uh, To throw them into prison seems to be the devil's main plan. Get Christians locked up, stop them from preaching and living out the gospel, and uh, for some, the experience might be too much that they'll just give up the faith. But while the devil may have had his wicked and evil plans, God was going to use that for his own purposes. See it again there in the middle of verse 10. You're going to be thrown into prison that you may be tested. The devil doesn't test people. When you get tested on something, there's a good chance... Uh, if, you're, if you rise up to the test, that you'll pass. The devil is not about you trying to pass. He wants to crush you under the weight of guilt and sin. The devil does not test. He tempts people, but he does not test them. But in the Bible, we read constantly that God is the one testing his people. He's constantly testing his people to test, to see if their faith is genuine. Do people love God and follow him because he gives you good stuff? Or do you love and follow God because he is worth it in of himself? The purpose of the test lines up with what Peter says in uh, chapter 1 of his book. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are being grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tested faith shows the glory and the beauty of Jesus. It says that I trust in Jesus not because he gives me stuff, not just because he fulfills my life, not just because I will get eternal life, but I trust Jesus because Jesus in of himself is worth it. And so as we read, uh, as Marilyn read out for us in chapter 4 of Peter's letter, do not be surprised when the trials come upon you. Imprisonment and persecution were a test to prove the faith of the Smyrnians uh, and whether or not their faith was genuine. So do not be afraid. Rise up to the test. The second reason why they should not be afraid was because this testing was for a short period. 
period of time. You notice there at the end of verse 10, he talks about this uh, testing for 10 days. Now, I don't think we're meant to read that literally. Remember, numbers within the book of Revelation are always highly symbolic, uh, uniquely symbolic. Ten Ten in the book of Revelation seems to symbolize something that is limited or a short thing. Ten days is a limited, short period of time. Short in comparison to what, though? I think it's short in comparison to eternity. If we're not meant to read this literally, then this testing and imprisonment could have actually been a relatively long time here on earth. It might have even been decades, but in comparison to eternity, even if our whole lives were spent in prison for our faith, it would be short. It would feel short. In comparison to the eternal stretching of time, their testing would be like the blink of an eye. Their suffering, their imprisonment, their testing will only be for a short period of time. And when it was all over, when they saw Jesus face to face, it would feel like it was over and done within the blink of an eye. Do not be afraid. Are you afraid to stand up for Jesus and the gospel? Sooner or later, all of us will be confronted with a choice to identify with Jesus publicly or deny him. It could be as serious as if you're a Muslim or, and, or a Hindu and you come out of that, or even someone raised in a Catholic home. For guys, for guys and girls like this who place their trust in Jesus and then realize that they really are deeply afraid of what their family's response will be. Or it could be like many among us who uh, have experienced there's friendships that begin to go cold because you're trying to actively live for Jesus. The whispered gossip, gossip in your back, uh, behind your back. The sniping remarks over the dinner table from parents. Smaller sufferings that still hurt. And through it all, we'll be faced with the same question. Will we identify with Christ or deny him? Not all denial is public, verbal, and outright. Not many of us are going to be in the position like Peter at the end of the Gospels, who, had to, who was confronted three times and denied Jesus publicly, outright, three times that he didn't know Jesus. I think many of us will actually get to that stage. But sometimes our denial of Jesus is functional by virtue of our silence. We go about living our lives, but we hide the fact that we belong to Jesus. So when our friends at school start to speak out against Christians, or when our workmates start to slander evangelicals, we remain silent while Jesus is defamed. Driven by fear... Our silence leads us to denial of Christ. We keep our faith private. We never publicly deny Jesus outright, but our silence says enough. Friends, do not be afraid. Smyrna are warned that they may be imprisoned for their faith, but he also says to them, Jesus also says to them that their imprisonment won't necessarily end with earthly freedom. Follow with me again at the end, from the end of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second response, the second imperative in this passage is to be faithful, to hold on to Jesus, to not let go. Be faithful even unto death. Right? Imprisonment 
was not necessarily going to lead to freedom, to being let out of prison. It may lead to martyrdom. Jesus was telling his church, it is more important to be faithful to me than to go on living. What is it that will spur this sort of death, uh, sort of death faithfulness? Sort of, what will spur on, what will encourage people to keep clinging on to Jesus, even to the point of death? Only if their hearts and their minds had been captured by something bigger than their own lives. When, only when your heart is gripped in that way will you be willing to lose your life for Jesus. And Jesus is worth it. If you die with him, then you will receive the crown of life. Remember how Jesus knew that this church was poor? Well, if, well to a church in poverty, receiving a crown would be the ultimate reversal. To the victor goes the spoils, and in this case, it is a prize beyond value. Eternal life was pictured in the last passage as access to the tree of life. In some ways, it's pictured here again as a crown of life, the reversal of all earthly fortunes. They were poor, but now they would be crowned and gloriously and eternally wealthy. Jesus is worth dying for. Just Jesus alone is worth dying for. But Jesus is also extraordinarily generous. Whatever that crown and reward looks like, no one will ever feel regret for forsaking any temporary or earthly pleasure or possession. So listen to this, what the Spirit says. Be faithful, conquer, and at the end of verse 11, you will not be hurt by the second death. We know what the second death is because at the end of Revelation we read this. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The second death is the death of those who are thrown into the lake of fire, into hell, for eternity. Jesus is the one who overcame death, the one who died and came to life, who holds the keys to death and Hades. So anyone who trusts him, who lives for him, who is willing to die for him, Though they who conquer to the end will not taste this second death. The only way to avoid it is to believe Jesus and to live like you believe in Jesus, being faithful even to death. Now, sometimes uh, someone who held on to this promise of a crown of life and who believed that he would avoid the second death was a man named Polycarp. Sounds like a fish, but that was his name, Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, this church. Given some of the dates of when Revelation was written, it's likely that Polycarp was a part of this church, alive and present, when this church first received the book of Revelation and these encouragements. Decades later, and around the, uh, around the year of 155, maybe around 60-ish years after this letter was written, after the book of Revelation was written, Polycarp was arrested and told by governing authorities to bow down before Caesar. He he was told to renounce Jesus, and this is how he responded. For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The official then threatened Polycarp with with death by being torn apart by wild beasts and by fire. Polycarp again responded bluntly, 
You threaten with a fire that burns only briefly, and after just a little while is extinguished, for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. And then he added at the end, but why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. At the end of his life, Polycarp was threatened with death, and he basically replied, bring it on. Was Polycarp inherently braver than most Christians? I don't think he was. But what he did was what every believer can and should do. He believed who Jesus was. He believed Jesus had died and rose again. And he believed Jesus knew his suffering. And this belief freed him from his fear. This is the sort of faith we should all want. That we can all have. So friends, do not be afraid. Be faithful unto death, even unto death. And look forward to receiving the crown of life along with Polycarp at the end. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work in our lives, that our lives would bear no shame, and that we would be able to stand shame-free on the day of judgment. Help us, Father, to keep being faithful, even to the point of death. Help us, Father, to keep proclaiming the great news of Jesus, to keep trusting in it. And then help us to not be afraid. To not be afraid of the things that are presently happening, and especially to not be afraid of what might happen to us in the future. Help us remember, you are the first and the last. The future is already guaranteed by you. Help us to, look for, to be faithful and look forward to that day when we will stand before your Son and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, help us to do these things for your glory, your honor, and your fame. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a question that did come up, uh, unfortunately because of the lag of, uh, from someone streaming, a uh, question came up, and I didn't get to answer it. I do think it's worth uh, um, answering, though, and it, oh, I can't remember the exact uh, form of the question, but it went something along the lines of, uh, the letter so far to the churches sounds like you are saved by faithfulness. Um, how, how does that relate to what we believe about the gospel? Now, I think the answer to that is, when you see Jesus introduce himself in each portion of the letter, um, he will introduce himself in specific ways that are targeted to that church. And those ways that he introduces himself are deeply, fundamentally rooted in who he is and what he's done for us in the gospel. The church cannot respond to what Jesus has said if they have not first put their trust and their faith in Jesus in the gospel and are seeking to follow him. And so every instruction that is given to each church in this letter. Instructions to persevere in particular, to repent of the sins that you need to uh, repent of uh, in some churches. All of these instructions are given within the context of the gospel, given within the context of the giver of this message, who is Jesus, the center of the gospel. So everything that we are looking at, and I hope today in particular was especially clear, that Jesus is the first and the last almighty God who died and rose again. Without him dying and rising again, these words don't mean anything. Faithfulness is dependent on, on trusting him. Faithfulness is dependent on Jesus being bigger in our lives than anything else. So, friends, 
Keep that in mind. Be encouraged by this word, especially as we keep going through uh, this mammoth letter to the seven churches. And for the rest of us, God bless. Have a great week, and we'll see you again next week.